0: So, as we read the, the scriptures here, as we read uh, the book of Revelation, there's some things in here that I think God intends to pierce our hearts. Uh, there's a couple of things that we can, that's going to help us. Uh, just some <clears throat> little background material here. The book of Revelation has 404 verses in it. That's all. 404 verses. And of that, 404 verses, Old Testament references <clears> or <throat> there are 278 times and in, in, in those verses. And of those verses that allude to the Old Testament, there's 518 references. 518. Many of those verses uh, will have references to two or more Old Testament things. There's no direct quote in there. What, um, what John does under the influence of the Holy Spirit is he takes things from different prophets and different parts of the Old Testament and brings them together in a fresh, creative way. And it just comes alive. And so that's what he's doing. So that's why it's helpful to know the Old Testament because that's where a lot of the keys are in the interpreting the symbolism in the book of Revelation. 95% of it's Old Testament. So much so that one writer has said that, uh, that what Revelation does is it takes the Old Testament and reinterprets it in light of the presence of Jesus Christ. That's what Revelation does. It takes all the themes, all the major ideas of the Old Testament, brings them together. And so just as the book of Genesis introduces all of these things, all the major themes of the Bible are there in Genesis, Revelation gathers them all up and brings them to fulfillment and conclusion so we can look for that and we can expect those things to happen and so that's one of the things that's going to be helpful Um, when he talks about some of these things that seem strange to us if you have a good concordance you can check it out and uh, many times you'll find the, the answer to those things in the Old Testament favorite books that he quotes most are Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah Zephaniah, Isaiah, Exodus, and Psalms. And um, there's a lot of key, key phrases in here. And a lot of key terms, uh, numbers are important. This is all because it's an apocalypse. But uh, just as an example, the word throne is used 62 times in the whole New Testament. 47 of those are in the book of Revelation. And the book that has the most references other than Revelation is Matthew, and it only has it four times. So the rest are just scattered out. But in the book of Revelation, 47 times. So that's a a key thing for him. Okay, a couple of things that are going to help put things in perspective before we get started is... um, You're going to notice that there's a couple of things that are going to be very, very important in this book. Uh, one of them is worship. And we're going to see that worship is going on um, throughout the entire book. That's the background. The background is worship. And it's out of worship that the book was written. John's going to tell you in the first chapter that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And... Uh, the Lord's Day, that would be Sunday for the Christians. And he knows, he's on, he's on a penal colony on the island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea. And um, seven churches are in Asia, but modern-day Turkey. They're relatively close to each other. The farthest ones, if you went from the ones who are the most farthest separated, it's only 150 miles. So within that 150 miles, you'd have all seven of these churches are there. They're real churches, Um, John himself lived at Ephesus for a long time, many years. So, he knows on the island of Patmos as he's coming before the Lord, that all these churches are also coming to the Lord, coming before the Lord in worship. He's in the Spirit. He's not in the flesh. He's in the Spirit. He's in the presence of the Lord and it's in that act of worship that the revelation comes. And this is... uh, Consistent with the, with many of the prophets, Isaiah is in the temple, and he sees this revelation of the throne of God. Um, and so, oftentimes, as you go, you're going to find that it's in the process of worship that fresh revelation comes because we're we're drawing close to God. We're in a position for God to speak to us more clearly, and we're going to see that this worship is taking place in heaven, and you're going to see all these horrible things happening on earth. But while these things are happening on earth, uh, the worship in heaven is unbroken. It continues. Um, and as you read the book, it, there's actually a crescendo. It starts off small, and as you go through the book, and as you he pulls the curtain back and you see that worship um, at different times in the book, You'll see that it, it grows. He's adding more and more and more to it. Till at the end, it's all creation is involved in the worship. So it's a, a worship that is growing and expanding and increasing as you go through the book. So what he's telling us is that um, this worship is going on all the time, it never stops in heaven, never ceases, day or night. It's going on now. And we can tap into that anytime, any place we choose. We can tap into that. So, if you listen carefully, in your spirit, there's worship, there's singing, there's praise, there's hallelujahs, there's anthems being sung by the angel choirs, even as we speak. Amen. And we can draw close and participate at any time door is open so worship is important and the whole key to the worship is the centrality of the person of Jesus Christ so we're going to see that uh, especially in the opening visions Jesus and God are the focal points of the worship and Jesus is the key to understanding this book and uh, i like to, to liken it to this. You remember Elijah. Elijah was one of the men in the Old Testament who didn't die. He went directly to heaven. how did he get there? Chariot. Fire. No. No. The no. whirlwind. The whirlwind. The whirlwind. Most of us think it was the chariot. But that's not what happened. But he
1: wasn't on the chariot? He wasn't on the chariot.
0: What happened is that... You know, Elijah kept telling him, um, telling Elijah, you stay here. <coughs> the Lord's telling me i got to go over here. And Elisha would not be moved. He says, no, I'm going with you. So I said, okay, come on. And it, this happened several times. And everywhere he went, the sons of the prophets would, would get Elisha aside and say, don't you know, your master's going to be taken from you today. And Elisha says, I know that, but let's not talk about it. And Elijah said, you stay here? And Elisha said, no. And so... Uh, eventually, they crossed the River Jordan. Great miracle. Uh, God stopped the waters, and they walked over, the two of them. And you know, the sons of the prophets were up here on the, on the hill watching them. And these two went out in the desert by themselves. And Elijah says, it's time for me to go. Elisha Elijah says, yeah, I know. And Elijah says to him, what do you want me to do for you before I leave? And Elisha says, I want a double portion of the spirit that's on me. Elijah says, Well, that's a difficult order. But if you see me when I leave, it will be yours. If not, uh, it won't have. Boom! Chariot of fire came down. Horses on fire, chariot on fire. And it's right between the two of them. Now, the temptation would be,
1: Wow, did you see that?
0: But Elisha kept his eyes on Elijah. And the whirlwind came and took him away. But Elisha was focused. And as Elijah disappeared, the mantle of Elijah came floating down, and Elisha picked it up, got his staff, he went back to the river Jordan, and he says, "Where is the God of Elijah?" And he struck the water, and man, it parted. And if you read it, um, Elisha did exactly twice the number of miracles. For God did through Elisha exactly twice the number of miracles as he had done through Elijah. One of them after he was already dead.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, that's the key to the book of Revelation. If we get sidetracked on the audio visuals, the power, the glory, the chariots of fire, the 666, or the beast, or, you know, the ten horns and all of that kind of stuff, you're going to be so confused and you're going to miss the whole content of the book. The key in all of those things is to keep focused on the person of Jesus Christ because he's what it's all about. And it all makes sense and has meaning in and through him.
1: Amen.
0: And so while all this stuff's going on, focus in on the person of Jesus Christ. And so that's one of the keys to this book, is to keep focused and concentrating on, on him. And um, what's gonna, he's, what he's going to do... Uh, let me go back to the worship for a minute. When do you worship? All the time. There you go. All of life should be worshipped. All of it. When we're working, when we're playing, when we're sleeping, whatever we're doing, whoever we're with, wherever we are, all of our life should be worship. Um, aware of the presence of the Lord. Concentrating on Him, that doesn't mean uh, that we always have to keep our eyes closed, otherwise we'd be in trouble if we had to drive somewhere. It <laughs> doesn't mean that we're always... Uh, Out loud, anyway, singing songs of praise, although that's not a bad idea. Uh, Many of our African friends do that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Everywhere they go, they sing. And uh, (laughs) so worship is something that, it's a way of life. And it's one way that we can tie in or tap in for this worship that's in heaven. And there are occasions when, in our own small way, we can experience... And know uh, the presence of the Lord in that way. So, this book, <clears throat> there's uh, about three different ways we can characterize this book. It is an apocalypse. Get over here, my spelling's not the best. It is an apocalypse. I didn't have it. Y-P-S-E. Yeah, thank you. It is an apocalypse. (coughs) It is the prophecy. It is a letter or an epistle. So it's an apocalypse in the the way it's presented. Uh, Apocalyptic literature... It's important to, to, to know what an apocalypse is. Apocalyptic literature was written during times of persecution to those suffering and dying. To encourage them to remain faithful so John understands that that's why he's on the island of Patmos for the testimony for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus that's why he's there um, Christians in those days were considered um, political prisoners because they opposed worship of the emperor and worship of Rome as a deity. And so because of that, they were considered um, under Nero and later under Domitian as enemies of the state, and they were persecuted as such. Before that time, they were persecuted by the Jews. And so apocalyptic literature is written during times of persecution, to those suffering and dying, to encourage them to remain faithful. Um, It's trying to pull back the veil to say, the powers of this world, the political and military powers of this world, do not have the final say, and they are not the ultimate answer, and they will pass away, but the God that we serve will be here forever, uh, this is, you're going to see this as you read through the letters to the seven churches, and then more so as we go through the book. But um, these are people that are experiencing persecution. Uh, they're being imprisoned. They're losing all of their property their homes. Uh, their possessions are being confiscated. Some are being executed and dying. Families are being split apart. Um, there's a lot of betrayal going on not only from outside, but sometimes betrayal from inside the church and sometimes even inside the families. Uh, the so, people that are experiencing that, some of them new Christians, they're asking, uh, is this true, what we've believed? And is this worth suffering and dying for? So, Apocalypse is written to encourage people like that and to help them know the certainty and the assurance of what they have believed and who it is that they are trusting. So, because it's uh, an apocalypse, it's going to have a lot of symbols. Uh, some of the things that they're going to say um, could get them in trouble. So they had to be careful. So you've got symbolism, you've got um, symbolic words, symbolic images, and the people that he's writing to would understand those things. Um, the problem that some of us have is that we confuse the symbol for the thing which it represents and when we do that then we get really messed up so we need to make sure that we differentiate between the symbol and the reality that it's it's speaking about could you give us an example quickly okay okay If you're looking for a beast to rise out of the ocean and with seven heads and ten horns you're probably not going to see it. A literal beast. Probably won't see it. Um, So you're going to have to ask yourself okay if that's true um, what does it represent? What does it mean? What's the symbolism that it's supposed to, to tell us about? And we'll talk about that when we get there but um, it's those kinds of things that we're, that we're talking about. Um, one of the ones that comes up to mind or right off uh, at the beginning, when it talks about to the angel of the seven churches, uh, the word angel means messenger. Some people have interpreted that as an angel like we normally think of, a spirit being who is over the churches. And others say, well, uh, the pastor or whoever's in the leadership, the elder at that church, um, would be the messenger so it's talking to the leader of the church so is it talking about the spiritual one is it talking about uh, spiritual being is it talking about uh, the leadership there uh, what's he talking about so those are kinds of things that we'll look at when we get there
1: are you going to cross reference those
0: types of things with uh, other references and other concepts of the Bible? <laughs> if you want to you can it's going to take longer <laughs> well you
1: just mentioned the beast and I read that it's also it's also mentioned in Daniel it is. the beast are also mm-hmm. mentioned in Daniel it is. and that they actually say exactly what
0: they represent in Daniel, in Daniel they do but now you're talking 500 years later mm-hmm. and all the players have changed from Daniel's day to 1st um, century B- uh, A.D. So you're talking, uh, all the major players there have changed, so uh, the symbol's the same. It's like, uh, you're too young, but they used to have a, drag, uh, a movie called Dragnet. Y'all remember that? <laughs> 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 the, the events of that are real. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. It's that kind of deal. All the players are there, but they apply to different, different people. Symbols mean different things later on. Okay. So that's the form, or the content. As far as the message that is there, this is a prophecy. And John's gonna tell you this in chapter one. He's gonna tell us it's an apocalypse. He's gonna tell us it's a prophecy. It is gonna be in the form of a a letter. So a prophecy is God's proclamation of what he is doing at that time. That's That's what it is. And so he's going to say, this is what's happening politically, economically, socially, internationally, outwardly. But this is what God is doing. In and through this. This is how he is interacting with the events that they are living through. So, the prophet knows what's happening because God has revealed it to him. He doesn't know it because he's intelligent or because he's spiritual or He's a super saint or a real mystic or anything like that. He doesn't get it because he prays longer or fasts more. It's not has nothing to do with it. It has to do with the gifts and calling of Jesus Christ. And so, this revelation John's going to tell us is given to him by Jesus, who gave it to his angel, who is going to show John what's going to happen. And it's going to be a word that speaks to those people that are suffering and dying. He is going to speak prophetically into their lives and help them understand the meaning and the purpose and the value of what they're living through. And what it's going to do is it's going to give them hope and courage and vision. Mm -hmm. And it's going to take away the doubt and the fear. I need that. Yeah, all of us need that. (laughs) Especially, you know, as... uh, We live in our own um, set of circumstances. There are many parallels, which is what apocalypse does. Because it's symbolic, it lends itself to multiple fulfillments. And so there are those who uh, talk about the book of Revelation as as everything happened already except the second coming of Christ in the first century. It all happened except for the second coming of Christ in the first century. There are those who believe it's all going to happen in the future. And they get in arguments. And the whole point of being a, an apocalyptic prophecy is it can be both and. It doesn't have to be more before, before it happens. It can happen several times before it happens. And we see this with the Old Testament prophecy because uh, prophecy is not just telling you what's going to happen a thousand years from now. It has no relevance to what you're doing now, does it? So when the prophecy first comes, it's directly relevant to the people who are receiving that prophecy. And it, has, it, it confronts them and challenges them in the, the time and place and situation that they themselves are in. Otherwise, it wouldn't mean anything. But at the same time, because it is prophetic, God can take that and he can use it to speak to successive generations. And he's done that uh, significantly throughout the Old and New Testaments. You'll find it all through the Gospels, taking these prophecies that applied to uh, Exodus or to Isaiah, and now they're being fulfilled in Christ. They had a meaning in Exodus, they had a meaning to Isaiah, and they have a, its ultimate meaning in the birth of Christ. So you find these prophecies that were meaningful at the time being picked up and reapplied in the new situation, coming to life and speaking into their situation. So, for instance, you can take the letters to the seven churches. Everything that he says was relevant to those seven churches. Um, Their circumstance, their geographic location, the political, social, economic sphere in which they were living, it applied directly to them and had a a very strong message to them in their situation. At the same time, uh, there's a symbolic meaning behind that, that... There are things that are written there that can apply to us today and have been ever since from first century to the present and into the future. Those things, uh, because it's the word of God, uh, it still has the same application or repeated applications. Okay. Now, uh, the third thing is a letter, it's an epistle. So it's got a salutation, it's got the body with different main points, it's got a conclusion at the end. It's in the form, it's written in the form of a letter, the whole book is. And so we can see that uh, there's three different kinds of literature here that we're looking at, and we need to keep in mind that all three of them are applying in every part that we read. It is an apocalypse. Uh, There is layers of hidden meaning. It is a prophecy, and a prophecy that has more than one application, and it's relevant to, to many situations, And it's in the form of a letter. So it's organized, it's set out. There are things that he wants us to know and understand. So these are some of the things that uh, will help get us started here. Just as far as the outward goes. But it's written to people that are are struggling and being persecuted. So there's uh, a couple of things also to keep in mind you remember the Gospel of John? He gives you all these uh, uh, signs, it's a series of signs, and each sign in the Gospel of John is meant to help us understand a little bit more about the nature and character of who Jesus is. The sign itself is a message and it's a revelation. Well, it's not until you get to the end of the book that John tells you the real reason that he wrote the book. At the end, when he gets down toward the uh, very last part of the book, He says, there's many other things that Jesus did that are not recorded in this book. But he said, these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing in him, you might have life in his name. Well, that's the end of the book. He tells you, now he's he's told you what he's doing and it makes sense of everything that went before. That was his purpose. That was his plan. Well, as you go through the the book of Revelation, you see all these horrible things happening. You've got all this destruction, all this death, all these judgments. There's fire, there's sword, there's plague, (coughs) there's wars. And all these horrible, horrible things are happening uh, in nature and among people and among nations. And between heaven and earth and all of this stuff that's going on. And you think, man, these horrible things, what's that all about? When you get to the end of the book it talks about God creating a new heaven and a new earth. And he says I'm going to say there's going to be no more um, several times. In chapter 21 verse 4 let me back up to verse 3. What's the purpose? What is all that Mean. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will will live with them. You're back to the garden of Eden where God came and dwelt among his people. And that's been the promise from the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament. Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He, God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Now listen, he's going to have a whole series of them here, seven of them. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He's going to keep on going down, there's not going to be any night, there's not going to be any sea, there's not going to be um, a temple anymore. Won't be a there's going to be a sea?
1: Like a- sea yeah. water?
0: Uh, why? What does the sea represent? You can drown <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so we'll talk about why the sea. What does water represent in the Old Testament? Life. Oh, be life. Can be life. Can be cleansing. Uh, can be new life. But there's a negative side as well. Dead saints. Okay. Can be the dead. How'd they die? Flood. Noah.
1: Judgment. That's a
0: judgment from God. In Genesis chapter one, it opens up with this uh, uncontrolled, powerful, chaotic body of water, and God speaks, and He brings order out of the chaos, and He subdues that. Where does the Where does the beast come from? Out of
1: the water.
0: Out of the sea. Oh, yeah. um, so it's it's this threatening, uncontrollable power. Um, it's out of that that the beast comes and so no more seed? Of
1: course we're in, you not more land anyway.
0: So, <laughs> <laughs> so you're going to have those things. So uh, you've got to keep in mind what God is doing from his perspective, not ours. And so um, the old order has to, there has to be a cleansing, there has to be a purging um, in order for the new life to come out of that. And then it says that the nations will walk in the light of God's glory, and there will be a streams of water from the throne, and nothing cursed will be there anymore. So it's from the perspective of new creation that the whole book of Revelation, including the dark parts, can best be understood. It's a part of the means to an end. Okay, second perspective, what happens now on the earth and what is still to come must also be understood in the light of the events of Good Friday and Easter from the perspective of Christ's death and resurrection. That's why it's good that we're studying this right now. So in chapter four, the opening vision after the letters to the seven churches, uh, as I have presented the Lion of Judah. becomes a lamb, and it's a lamb that had been slain but is alive again, and it's out of that context that the seals are broken, that the trumpets sound, that the bowls of the last plagues are given, that the personages arise, that the last judgment on the the great prostitute takes place that ushers in the New Jerusalem, so all of it has to be taken from the perspective of Easter. And Easter is not just Resurrection Day. Easter is the passion, the suffering, uh, the agony in the garden. And you could argue that it began when Jesus came down from, from heaven. Because that was a, a great self denial, a great emptying of himself. So we have to look at what's happening here from the perspective of the death and resurrection, the ascension, and the ruling power. Of Christ himself. So Easter begins with the passion. The sacrifice of the Passover lamb. With the vicarious suffering. Of the servant of God. Which is what Jesus is. Isaiah's suffering servant. All those passages at the end. And it also carries with it. Deep implications of how Christians. Deal with power. And this is. Uh. This is why he's writing, because these people are being persecuted by the power of the state. And it was powerful. The Roman Empire was the greatest power in that whole part of the earth. And it was massive. So the line of Judah, who becomes the Lamb, pouring out his lifeblood for the salvation of the world. So the book of Revelation keeps us from The proud illusion that there is a way to God's kingdom which avoids the way of the cross. And what we're going to see is this is written to people during times of persecution, suffering, and dying. Um, God's not taking them out. He wants them there. This is part of it. So there's nothing in the book of Revelation about this false uh, triumphalism, nothing here uh, that's going to spawn a crusade or a holy war. That's not what Revelation is all about. Hmm. You remember Jesus before Pilate. Jesus says, you are a king then. And he said, yes, but my kingdom is not of this world. Otherwise, my disciples would fight. But now my kingdom is not from this world. And the kingdom of God doesn't come with a sword. Mm. It comes through a cross. Mm. And as Christians, we need to be aware of that. I had a, a, a good friend tell me one time that he would die for me. And that's quite a statement. And then he told me, I would kill for you. I don't want anybody killing for me. <laughs> that's the wrong kingdom.
1: Is this someone from another culture? No. Hmm. Interesting. I almost took work for you. <laughs> 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 <Almost> <laughs> <a duck one. laughs> i do the job.
0: <laughs> Second thing is that <clears throat> it keeps us from the weakness of faith, which no longer dares to hope for a new heaven and a new earth. Um, there's a, a romantic kind of view of uh, Christians are in poverty and weakness and what it leads to is a mediocre piety um, a contentment with ah that's good enough kind of thing which leads to a a private religion of saved souls while the Caesars of this world remain unchallenged Uh, Hmm. Jesus was standing in front of Pilate and Jesus is looking back down now is it I mean, would you read that again? <laughs> yeah. It says the, um, it keeps us. The book of Revelation keeps us from the weakness of faith, which no longer dares to hope for a new heaven and a new earth. And it keeps us from romanticizing weakness and piety, because what that ends up is with a, a private religion that of saved souls while the Caesars of this world the power structures remain unchallenged there's no witness there in other words it's we're going to gather all of our group and I'm saved you're saved we're going to come together we're going to save the group and that's out the rest of the world that's apocalyptic that's not um, the apocalypse of John that's the intertestamental apocalyptic that's an escapism and you don't have people being brought out of that uh, this, the whole thing, uh, gonna make you a little upset with me here. Whole thing about the rapture came mm-hmm. in in the early uh, 1900s with uh, Darby mm-hmm. and Schofield. You never heard about it before then, and um, it's been made big-time movies and stuff. It brought in billions of dollars through uh, uh, late through all the the movies about Left Behind, Left behind mm-hmm. and all those the books and all that stuff. And I don't see it. I don't see it at all in Scripture. Uh, God didn't take Jesus out. He left him there to suffer and die. And when Jesus laid down the gauntlet for the church, he said, if anyone is going to follow me, you deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And He didn't pull
1: pull the apostles out either. He
0: didn't pull the apostles out either. Almost all of them. They were the first fruits. First fruits is the best and the first, and they are the sacrifice. Mm -hmm. What makes us feel better? (laughs) (laughs) But you've got to have first fruits in each generation, it's not the once off. Mm -hmm. So the Lion of Judah won the victory as the slaughtered lamb. And so you see there in Chapter 4, the Lion of Judah becomes the Slaughtered Lamb. But the Slaughtered Lamb is alive. So that's why he's writing. That's why it's giving hope to the people that are here. It encourages them to remain faithful. So the purpose of the book of Revelation is an encouragement and a warning for the Christians who face persecution. This is for believers who begin to doubt whether Christ has indeed won the decisive victory over evil powers of this world because it doesn't look like it and it doesn't feel like it. And John is saying, um, this is what faith is all about. And looks can be deceiving. So we trust him who's promised, and as we trust him, then we discover that he is faithful. And there's a difference in the book between uh, tribulation and the wrath of God. Tribulation comes from people, and these people are undergoing tribulation. But the wrath of God is going we're going to be seeing that on the, the bowls of wrath and what happens to those who follow these. That's the wrath of God. Christians aren't under that. They experience tribulation, persecution. It also shows us... Um, the true character of the forces that are now active in world history. In other words, this book of Revelation, it unmasks them and shows us the power behind the power and shows us who we're really dealing with here. So Paul says, uh, this is a spiritual battle. Our fight is not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers and rulers of darkness and high places. And they're uncovered here, and we're going to see them, because um, the false prophet's going to come, and he's going to appear as a lamb. Yeah. And so this is why it calls for discernment, and you remember Jesus told the disciples that if it were possible, even the very elect would be deceived in that day. It's not possible, why? Because the spirit of truth is within them he shows them the truth but it's going to be very believable the deception that's there so these are uh, uh, several things that will get us started anyway Um, we haven't even gotten to the book yet (laughs) but this is some of the background Um, I'll have some things to hand out to you that will help a little bit there's uh, seven blessings in this book we want to look at them Opens and closes with that. So uh, let's have a prayer, and we'll we'll end tonight.